You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, one of the worst serial killers in American history, Gerard Schaefer, who terrorized Florida in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And then the the kicker was, he said, well, you know, geez, holidays are coming. Could I possibly delay my uh, incarceration? And they said, okay, you know, well, you start after the holidays. And that was, um, that was in September of 72. And he started his sentence in January of 73. And in that time, he killed six girls. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Most Notorious. So glad you are here. So, my guest today is Patrick Kendrick. He worked a dual career, both as a firefighter and a freelance journalist, before becoming a full-time writer. He has published articles and short stories in many newspapers and magazines. He has won awards for his books, Papa's Problem and the Savants. And he joins us now to share details from his book, American Ripper, The Enigma of America's Serial Killer Cop. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Eric. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you. And and I appreciate the time you're giving me to, to talk about my book. Thank you for your time as well. So let's just start here. Can you share with my listeners how you first got involved? In this case, okay, um, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try and abbreviate uh, past 30, 40 years <laughs> quickly. Um, uh, I, I didn't, um, I wasn't handed an assignment to to do the a story on uh, Schaefer, George Schaefer, is the American Ripper we're talking about. Uh, it was part of my youth. Um, I grew up in Palm Beach County in Florida, and uh, Gerard Schaefer uh, was a policeman first in Broward County, just south of us, and then later he was a deputy sheriff in Martin County, just north of uh, Palm Beach County. Um, 
It was back in the early seventies and I was, um, I was dating a, a girl who, um, her parents had a, a, a beach house up in Martin County and Hutchinson Island and, uh, ended up, ended up later being the place where, um, Schaefer would take his, his victims to, um, to murder them. And I, I, I want to say there was no investigation to find Gerard Schaefer. No one knew he was a serial killer. He was a cop that hid that very well. But, uh, on a personal note to me, as I read the newspapers when he was, when he was finally, um, convicted and, um, and the murders came out, I couldn't help but notice that, uh, one of the victims, he was, he was convicted of, uh, murdering, looked a lot like the girl I was dating back then. And it was pretty clear to everyone. I mean, he had long blonde hair and blue eyed and I mean, very similar in appearance. And, um, of course it was frightening, you know, but as kids, you know, we would try and scare each other when we're out at uh, her beach house in Martin County and, and, you know, say Schaefer's coming to get you and that kind of thing, you know? So, um, it stuck in my head. It was, uh, the first time I'd, I'd ever really heard of a serial killer. And it was at a time when, um, they were really revving up the late sixties and the early seventies. There were more serial killers than any time in history. Um, just off the top of my head, you have Ted Bundy, you have Danny Rollins, the Gainesville killer. Uh, you had son of Sam, uh, you had the, um, Boston Strangler was a little bit earlier in the 60s, uh, but they still hadn't termed that, that, uh, come up with the term serial killer. That was later um, a byproduct of an, another investigation by an FBI agent uh, that came up with that, that term. But um, it, was, uh, it was one of those things I always remembered that I lived in a county not too far from where a serial killer was operating. And, um, you know, I grew up and went through college and I, I always fancied I, I might want to do some writing, but uh, I was studying fine arts uh, primarily and ended up uh, getting into a, a, the job of uh, the fire department as a firefighter. And then on my days off, I would do some artwork. And then I would also, um, I started selling stories to the newspaper about my fire experience. And then I started getting some assignments uh, to cover things and and um, I was surprised no one had ever written a book about Gerard Schaefer. And I had written a couple of uh, fiction books. Uh, and at that time, I didn't, I wasn't lucky enough to sell them. I guess they weren't that good. But um, uh, I always thought I might want to write a book about Schaefer, but I, I didn't have enough experience with that. So uh, I looked into it a bit, and, and um, but continued my stories and developing myself as a, a freelance journalist. And uh, usually reporting on what the fire department does and what I found in the streets and my medical calls and the various emergencies I went on and hazmat things and special operations and so forth. And and um, I started doing articles for different magazines, Fire Chief, Fire Engineering, and all the newspapers, Palm Beach Post, Miami Herald, the Sun Sentinel, um, most of them in South Florida. Because at that time, you could make a decent uh, living as a freelance uh, journalist. Uh, they paid fairly well. And um, every, everyone had their own, their own newspapers, you know, every county, city, so forth. 
uh, it's very much different from today where most of the newspapers have been bought out and there's only a few people actually publishing them anymore. But so at some point, um, I was contacted by the editor of a magazine called Police Times Magazine that was an industry magazine for law enforcement. And that, um, that editor said, hey, um, there's a policeman that's in jail that says he, is, uh, he was convicted uh, of murdering people and he's innocent. And they suspect he killed others, but this, he was only convicted for the two and he says he's innocent. And we want to get his story. And I said, well, okay, who is that? And he tells me it's Gerard Schaefer. So I said, well, I, I'm familiar with the case, you know, from when I was a young uh, you know, teenager. And I said, well, very well, you know, I, I can get you into the prison. Uh, it didn't sound like a real uh, <laughs> comfy offer, but um, I said, well, okay, um, let's do that. And even with his help, it took me almost two years to get into the prison. But in the meantime... Schaefer was at a low security, minimum security, they call him prison, in Avon Park. He had access to a phone and um, printers and typewriters and all that, um, you know, whatever, you know, um, to make his life more comfortable. I'm not sure why he was in a minimum security prison after being convicted of murdering two girls in a vicious manner, but that's where he ended up. And so he was able to call me and we started interviewing then, but I still wanted to meet him. And, and I, I didn't want to finish the article until I had. So like I say, it took some while uh, to do that. And um, fortunately, the editor was patient and he knew we had to go through all this, um, this paperwork with the prison system, part of which was because of Ted Bundy had signed a contract with um, a book publisher and so the state of Florida, for at least at that time, put out some legislation that you would not be able to get into a prison and write a book about a serial killer or some sensational crime where the, where the prisoner could um, profit. So I had no intention of him profiting from anything, and I wasn't even thinking about a book at the time, but uh, I wanted to get the article done. And they would let uh, journalists in, but um, there was that rule about the book. So, and if you were a journalist, you could get into the prison for a, about an hour, no more. But um, when I finally got in to see him, they, uh, you know, you go through security and, and um, they were checking me out. And I had a briefcase and I had a camera broken down into parts in the briefcase. And I thought, well, the not supposed to have a camera either, so uh, um, maybe they won't find it. And so when I walked in, I was wearing a three-piece suit and dressed up pretty nice, and they mistakenly thought I was his attorney, and I didn't tell him anything different. And uh, with that, I, I had unlimited access to him that day, and they didn't check my briefcase. Um, so that's how it started with him, and... Um, and I ended up uh, interviewing him for some five hours that day in person, along with the many other interviews I'd been doing over the phone with him. So it was almost like we were starting all over when we did the interview. Uh, but that's that's how I came to know him and, and started getting his story. And I thought, uh, well, it was no problem put, putting together an article about my experience with him at that time. 
But then as I started working on the book, I realized there's going to be a lot more work to this and um, it was going to take time. Um, and it did. I spent about five years um, putting together a book that was way too long. And I signed with a publisher, gosh, sometime, I guess it was in the late 80s by then. And that publisher, before I could get the entire book to them, uh, edited and, and uh, cleaned up and finished, um, they went out of business. So um, I set the book aside for a while, but I still had some articles, that some other articles I did about him. And then when he he read my articles, it was he was obvious uh, to him I was not a fan, but um, just writing what what I found out about him over several years of doing more investigations and interviewing families and and uh, investigators and medical examiners and dental forensic people. So he kind of set me up to he was he got in the in the habit of suing people. And, um, one, one other writer wrote me, he said he was, he, I don't even know it was a, a, a writer, a real person, but he wrote me a letter saying he wanted to meet Schaefer and he heard that I had met Schaefer in jail, one of the few people that had, and, and he wanted, um, information about Schaefer. Uh, he said he was going to try and get into prison, but he was, uh, frightened of him. He was uh, supposedly a worse killer, if that can be rated, uh, than Ted Bundy. And, and I just went on and on with all of his fears. And I was pretty done with Schaefer at that time anyway. And I said, um, I said, There's, he's nothing to be frightened of. He's in prison. He's a middle-aged, pale, doughy wimp who preyed on people who were psychologically and physiologically weaker than him. And, um, and so he sued me for libel, uh, for libel saying that I was, um, I had, I had to prove what I said about him was true. And I thought that that was a joke. Um, uh, I, I had a police officer come to my house and deliver, a, a, um, the lawsuit and a summons to court. And, um, my then newlywed wife who works at an attorney's office, told me I had to entertain the suit and I thought it was a joke. I, I, I was in the fire department. We played jokes on each other all the time and we know some cops too. And, and, and we thought, I thought, well, one of the cops, you know, is a friend of the firefighters I know. And, and this is a big joke. And, um, I even asked the cop, I said, you're joking, right? I mean, how can a serial killer sue me? I mean, I pretty, pretty upstanding citizen, firefighter, and, and a freelance writer. And he said, no, I'm not, it's not a joke, Mr. Kendrick. You, you're being sued by a serial, serial killer. And um, so that's, um, that's in a nutshell how I came to know him. And uh, he, I was, <laughs> I can't say I was ever a fan of his, but uh, I, I, in fact, I resented him quite a bit already, but um after the lawsuit, I resented him even more because I had to spend tens of thousands of dollars on attorneys who really didn't even know how to defend something like this. You know, um, it's not it's not a real common thing that a, a serial killer sues you for libel, basically for calling him a wimp. So um, after that, and it was finally settled, 
my wife asked me never to publish the book and, uh, and stay away from the case. And as we were newly married, I thought, well, it'd be a good idea <laughs> if I'm going to keep this wife to uh, comply with her, her wishes. <laughs> so that's what, um, that's what we did. And, um, and so he sued me. It was settled with prejudice, uh, which means that if he tried to sue me again, he, you know, if you were trying to sue me, Eric, and, and it was settled with prejudice, that would mean you could not sue me again for the same thing. Uh, but you would you would have something to lose, you know, your home, your whatever savings, whatever. Uh, but he had nothing to lose. He was a prisoner with, you know, torn up canvas shoes and sitting in now a state prison, uh, maximum maximum security and um so he sued me again and then sued me um a third time this went on for years so and again my wife wasn't real pleased with that but uh she was a big help with it and um and i finally found the right attorney that that uh, could help me get through it but and then of course during the last lawsuit um he was murdered in jail so that stopped the lawsuits and um that's 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 my brief history with Schaefer in a nutshell. I don't want to forget at the end of the interview, I want to ask you about his prison murder, but let's wait on that a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be the climatic ending. <laughs> it must have been so frustrating to be in the process of writing a book that would help expose this terrible human being to the world and then have him attempt to thwart you over and over. But but you weren't the only person he went after, right? No, he sued he sued the state attorney, Robert Stone, and he sued the public defender, Elton Schwartz, and he, he sued in almost any reporter that would mention his name, uh, any of the investigators who got into the paper who would say something about uh, something that might help sway the public view of him in a in the manner in which he should have been viewed as a convicted killer and so you know he could anyone can sue anybody for anything is what i found out in this and and the courts have to entertain them if they are submitted to the court in a proper fashion and he was very good at that he was a very smart man uh he was a law enforcement officer so he knew the court system very well and um he would handwrite all of these subpoenas and all the all the documents that the court needed, and, and um, he he had all the time in the world to do it. And he, it was another, I think, it was another part of his sadistic character. You know, uh, he knew that it made people uncomfortable. At the very least, they had to entertain him. You know, they had to entertain his his wishes. You know, and that's just that's another power play that serial killers seem to enjoy you know that's their whole thing is they when they're going to kidnap and murder someone it's it's puffing up their superiority and um they they get a lot of gratification for that uh and i think that was just another way of him continuing his serial killing at least in a literal way right right trying to assert power yes right so we have already established that he was far from a good person. But let's start at the beginning, if you don't mind. Where did this guy, Gerard John Schaefer, come from? 
Okay, well, he came from um, Minnesota, and his father worked for Kimberly Clark, and uh, he was gone. He was a traveling salesperson, and um, so he was gone quite a bit out of uh, Schaefer's life, and then the mother and father divorced, and the Schaefer's moved down to Florida in Broward County, and he also had a brother and, and a sister, and we, um, you know, as, as far as I know, I mean, everybody in the family was normal other than Gerard. Uh, but uh, early on in his life, um, the more I looked into it, the more I, I was able to obtain um, psychiatric reports uh, on him from a fairly young age, particularly when he got into college, because... Nowadays, those would be protected by HIPAA. They would not be able to release that information to me. But back then, it was not protected. So I, I've got, I have the actual transcripts from his meetings with psychiatrists over the years before he started murdering people and also after he started murdering people. So, and it was clear from the beginning that he had some deep set problems. You know, he, he uh, apparently, as most serial killers do, they start small. They're, they'll start killing neighborhood uh, pets. You know, someone's dog or cat goes missing. And first of all, they want to see, can they do that? You know, can I kill something, you know? And then once I kill it, what what's inside it, you know? And, um, and he was a butcher, you know. I mean, he always mutilated his victims and... And then there were some uh, some cows in that area that started being mutilated as well. And there's pretty good evidence that um, that he was the one doing that, and and perhaps even even having some sexual gratification from doing that. And then that extended into you know more morbid thoughts. You know, um, what would it be like if I kidnapped someone and I hung them? slowly you know and then let him down before they died and then hang him back up and and just defile them in every way i could you know and 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 i speak of this almost in first person because i actually have many of his diaries and transcripts where he openly uh, speaks of this of course later on he tried to say he was just trying to write fiction uh and 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 um put himself off as a uh, as a, a writer which he never got anything published so if he was a writer he wasn't a very good one but that's that's how he developed and and yet um, uh, he got through college uh, a lot of his college professors knew there's something wrong with this guy and uh, they had him do some student teaching and he would say inappropriate things in class and write inappropriate things on the board and so it seemed like the education people the professors and so forth uh detected this 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 guy's uh you know he's half a bubble off on the level you know so they they told him you know you're not going to be able to teach and they pulled him out of the student teaching assignment and he bummed around a little bit and managed to get a job as a cop can't be a teacher you know be a policeman so he was hired at a small department down there called um it was the department, police department in Wilton Manors, very small community in Broward County. And it didn't take too long before they figured out there's there's something wrong with Gerard. You know, he um, 
he had this odd set of handcuffs that he'd gotten from somewhere in Europe. And they were almost like these trick things that magicians use. You could, you could put them on, but they had no key. And unless you know how to take them off, you're not getting them off. So he put one, put that on another officer saying, Hey, let me, let, you know, let's just try this out. And they couldn't get them off. So, uh, and then he starts saying odd things in front of other officers and, and, particularly when he was on scenes with other officers as they were doing investigations and, and traffic homicides and so forth like that as well. And, you know, basically everyone's getting creeped out by him. So they, they fired him and he went up to Martin County and within a couple of months and was hired as a deputy chief, uh, deputy uh, sheriff there. And, um, and I should point out, during this time, he managed to graduate from college. He managed to get married twice. And the first wife, after just a few months, said, I'm out of here, and disappeared. And never would talk to people um, about him at all, even before they knew he was a serial killer. But then afterwards, of course, she really didn't want to talk about it. Uh, but he managed to find another nice young lady, Teresa Dean, and... He married her, and he was still married to her. She was, she was crazy about him. You know, he's you know law enforcement officer. You know, big at the time, still nice looking man, and and um, and she never suspected anything. He always had police things to do at night, and he was gone a lot. And he'd take his uniform, and she'd iron it up for him as on the way out the door, and and then uh, he'd be gone all night sometimes, and say he was on his different cases and, and the fact was he was out picking up girls hitchhiking and and um and murdering them um so that's that's the young Schaefer up until i would say the time he got caught and um and how he got caught is a whole nother story uh it, he um he kidnapped two girls nancy trotter and paula c wells who got away from him but he took them, well, I, sh I should step back a minute and say he picked them up the same way he always did. And this is, and the reason we know this is because these two girls survived. And um, they were hitchhiking and he was off duty and playing clothes in his own car. And, but he pulled over and told him, hey, I'm, I'm cop, showed his badge. And um, he played this tough guy, nice guy routine, you know almost schizophrenically, which actually he was uh, schizophrenic. And uh, he would uh, kind of scare him into, you know, hey, you know, shouldn't hitchhike around here and stuff. But, you know, just want to give you the cautions. And now let's all be buddies. Let's all go to the beach tomorrow and uh, I'll pick you up. And so he did that. And he, um, he took the two girls. He said he wanted to show them an old fort, an old pirate's uh, fort or something on Hutchinson Island and they got there and it was just a beat up old shack and uh, Hutchinson Island extends from Martin County into St. Lucie County. And I'll, I'll bring up the reason that's important later, but he took the girls there and in an unusual move, he, he tied them both up in, in slightly separate places, uh, maybe 50 yards apart where they couldn't see each other, but they could hear each other. And then he had to, he had to go, he had to, you know, go to work or whatever, but he had one of them hanging by her neck, standing on a slippery route at the edge of the intracoastal waterway. 
so that if she slipped off the root, she would hang and, and hands tied behind her back. And the other one was tied up as, as well, but more like hog tied, you know, with your neck to your feet and your ankles, you know, backwards. And uh, they both managed to get away. And the one, uh, Nancy, um, that got away initially, she, she basically turned her head around enough to where she could chew on the knot of the rope and got the noose loose enough around her neck. And, and, uh, and, and it took quite a while to do this, you can imagine. Uh, and once she got away, she managed to get, get her hands from behind her back. You know, young and flexible is good, you know, so she was able to do that. And she was afraid if she, her, her objective was to get some help. She was afraid if she went back, she didn't know he was gone. She just knew she, she was left alone. And she thought maybe the other girl was already murdered. If she wasn't, she, she was not going to be able to do anything to help her by herself. Uh, I mean, he had guns and machetes and uh, some other gear, you know, so so she swam across the intercoastal waterway, which is, is a pretty good feat up in that air, area. And um, as she gets to the other side of the, the shore, here comes a cop car. And she's thinking, oh, it's him. You know, I'm dead. So and it turns out it was the sheriff, the sheriff of the county, who was a very young man at the time. And hours had passed. So he told her, hey, um, hey we know what's going on. We're glad we found you and you're still alive, thank God. But, um, you know, we need to take you, to, you know, to the police station and figure out what's going on here. And by the way, um, your friend got away and she had run out into the highway and a trucker had picked her up, which pretty bold of her to let anybody pick her up again. But um, he picked her up. And so they both ended up at the police station uh, physically unharmed for the most part, but uh, both them mentally um frightened for the rest of their lives and i i can attest to that because um i tried calling them later and i talked to um nancy uh, and this was many years later maybe 15 20 years afterwards and she she was very quiet and nervous on the phone and and uh and by that time we were probably in our 30s she's same age as me i guess i was in my 30s then and she said, well, I'll call back tomorrow and I'll, I'll talk to you more. And when I did call her back, her father answered and, and in no uncertain terms, uh, threatened to sue me, kill me, whatever, if I ever called again. So it was never my intention to intrude on people's lives. I just wanted to write the facts of the story and get them as close to whatever truth can be found in these things. Um, but that's that that's how he came out that's how we knew okay there's something wrong with this guy and so he lost his job as a sheriff but if you and i were to kidnap two girls and tell them all this horrible stuff that he told them he was going to do which he ended up writing in a, in a diary that i i was able to access you and i would go to jail forever whether the girls were killed or not, you'd kidnap two girls and torture them and, and tie them up and tell them you're going to kill them. It's, uh, you know, you're going to prison. But uh, because he was a policeman and he said he, he, he convinced people, he was trying to teach them what could happen to them. He was doing them, a, you know, giving them a lesson. People bought that. And 
And he, um, so he lost his job and they said, okay, well, they bargain it out and they give him six months. It wasn't even for false imprisonment. It was almost like a, a battery charge. It was a, it was pretty mad, uh, small compared to, you know, premeditated murder. And then the, the kicker was, he said, well, you know, geez, holidays are coming. Could I possibly delay my, uh, incarceration? And they said, okay, you know, well, you start after the holidays. And that was, um, that was in September of 72. And he started his sentence in January of 73. And in that time, he killed six girls. And we will return momentarily after a brief break. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And, of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. A perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. And we are back. uh, It's just horrific. Is, isn't it? What an absolute travesty of justice. It is. Um, and um, it, it really was. And it really made me scratch my head about things because um, I'll, I'll go back to that Hutchinson Island, which becomes um, emblematic of, of this whole thing to me because I was familiar with that island and it was not uh, populated very much then and uh, pretty remote but half of it like I said was in St. Lucie County and half in Martin County well, where they they ended up finding the bodies of the murder victims um, on April 1st 1973 and that was Susan Place and Georgia Jessup from Broward County and um, they had been missing since a September of 72, right after he got off uh, with this uh, light conviction. And, um, uh, you know, he was free to go. So in- instead of laying low, I, he knew, hey, whatever I'm going to do, I've got to do in the next few months. And so he went on a, a killing spree. And um, I, well, I, that's not the right term, actually. A spree is a different kind of a killer. Um, usually a uh, a serial killer is is long term, hidden. No one's looking for him. Where a spree killer is is the guy that just goes he goes crazy one day, shoots the people at the office, drives down, shoots the people at the laundromat, drives another you know to the post office, shoots people there, and it's it's not prearranged. You know, it's just someone gone crazy. That's the difference between spree and serial, which serial goes on for years and is premeditated. But um, that was an area he liked to operate in. And, um, and so anyway, the two girls he was convicted of was Susan Place and Georgia Jessup. And I came to know their families well. And uh, in the book, what he tried to do is a lot of serial killer books, you know, you learn about the serial killer. You learn about um, the victims. Well, you don't learn anything about the victims. You get their names and their numbers, you know, and so forth like that. But I wanted to personify them a lot more than you typically see in the crime books. I 
I maybe I spent too much time on that, but I, I wanted to talk to their parents if they wanted to talk to me. And some of them wouldn't, some of them wouldn't, but, um, uh, Susan places, parents were very open to me and, um, and really, I've got to give credit to them as the ones that um, that solved this case because, you know, after their daughters went missing, two more girls went missing down the street. Uh, Briscalina and Farmer were their names. And then Peggy Ron, Ron and Wendy Stevenson, two really little girls, eight, nine years old, went missing after that, all within, you know, a couple of months. So it was it was clear, I mean, to me, as I studied it, you know, everything's clear in hindsight. Uh, but there was no police department looking for a serial killer. There was no one really looking for a killer. There was some, you know, missing persons, bulletins, and so forth put out. But like I tell everybody, there's no Sherlock Holmes, you know. This um, police business is nothing like that. It's um, things you see on TV where you've got the one clever investigator that fixes it figures it all out by finding a bottle cap somewhere or something. It just doesn't exist. But, but the parents um, saw Gerard Schaefer at their house with, with their daughter, Susan and her friend, Georgia. And they gave an identification to the police and say, said our daughters left with this man last night, never came back. A few days later, they reported again. They give, they actually had the tag number of the car and uh Schaefer's car and they gave that to the police but when the police wrote it down they they wrote one one letter down wrong so the Mr. and Mrs. Place were out looking all over the state trying to trying to find this tag number that as frustrating as, as it is I mean you know if your kid went missing you'd do anything you could especially if you weren't getting help from the police so they went uh, they traveled all over and for some reason, they began to believe it was over in Tampa. One police officer said, oh, well, if it has that one letter in it, you know, there's a designated letter back then on the Florida license plates, there would be a letter that designated which county it was from, basically. And it didn't necessarily make any sense. It's not like the letter P meant Palm Beach or something like that. It was just different letters. But that's what the policeman told them who wrote the letter down wrong. So... Uh, they were looking in the wrong areas, but um, eventually they heard about this this kidnapping that had happened. And on April first, April nineteen first, nineteen seventy three, they were still driving around on weekends and wherever they could. Both of them still worked um, and and um, trying to find him. And two men that were out looking for beer cans. This, to salvage and, and take to scrapyard, found the remains of Susan and Georgia on Hutchinson Island, half of which is in St. Lucie and half of which is in Martin County. Well, this part was in Martin County, but the prosecutor, the state attorney, Robert Stone, was from St. Lucie. He, and jurisdictions, there's no red line there, design, you know, designating where it was and it was in the woods. So he, that's how he got the case. And I mentioned Robert Stone because he becomes a key player in, 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 in this tragedy. He was a very good attorney, very good background, um, and but he was ambitious. And he got involved with it, and, and somehow or another, he came up with some numbers. Um, part of that was from items they found at J Gerard Schaefer's mother's house 
uh, articles, uh, purses, jewelry, and eventually some teeth. Um, they found at his mother's house, and and so and IDs, IDs, uh, driver's licenses, so forth, and so they came up with a number of uh, twenty eight people that were missing and is presumed dead. They didn't have any proof of that other than some things that they found, but that was the number they came up with. And that becomes a key part of this, this whole story is that as I looked into it and that number was still hanging around, I, I thought, well, I've got to find out what I can about every one of these people. Well, I found out pretty clear there were uh, 11 most certainly murdered and, and most likely 14, but 28 was, there was no evidence that there was another 14 on top of that. In fact, the other names, I searched most of those people out and found out some of them were still alive. It's just Schaefer had taken their, just to be nasty, you know, pulled them over and took their driver's license away just to give them, you know, a hard time. And one guy was killed in a plane crash and other things happened to other people, but they, they were not murder victims. So that that was um, a key piece of evidence in the whole book that no one else had ever tried to find out what happened to these people. Uh, and I found out, okay, well, he didn't kill those other people, but he certainly killed half of them. And maybe he killed a whole, a whole lot of other people. But um, again, you know, once he got convicted, uh, which he ended up, he was convicted for Susan Place and Georgia Jeff's murder. Um, and he, uh, he was convicted, but uh, even the, the trial itself was, was a mess because they used a six-person jury. It's a capital crime. Murder is a capital crime. And so it, you have to have a grand jury. The idea to go without a grand jury has to be agreed on by the court, by the state attorney, and by the public defender. And how they all agreed on that i don't know to my to this day i i i scratched my head over it and 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 i never got a great explanation from from either stone or his public defender uh elton swartz but um stone was in the paper a lot with it and and um managed to convict uh schaefer um i mean the evidence evidence was pretty strong he still had Susan Place's or uh, George Jessup's uh, purse at his at his mother's house, and then um, you know the trial went fairly quick, uh, quick conviction, um, unanimous decision, uh, and you know I know why they went with the six, and it's because it's easier to convict someone with six people uh, debating proof than twelve people. You know, if you just get one person and twelve, it's, it's a hung jury. So. Six-person juries usually arrive at a decision quicker, you know, whether it's a murder case or anything else. So, but it should have been a grand jury. So, mistake—I no, won't say mistake number one. Mistake number one was letting him go after the kidnapped girls. You know, uh, but but they gave him Schaefer. That gave him some ammunition to start attacking first the, the state attorney, saying, "Well, he didn't even con- convict me right." Uh, you know, bragging on that. And then, and then he, he got some other information out there that the state attorney's chief investigator, a man named Lem, uh, Lem Brumley, was partners with the biggest drug smuggler in Florida, a guy named Donald Rollerson. And um, 
that was discovered, and he was convicted and went to jail. So that was Schaefer saying, well, they, the state's, uh, the state attorney's office, um, they set up this murder. I was investigating it, and uh, that's why they, you know, they trumped up these charges to say I killed the girls and, you know, but that falls apart when you have eyewitnesses saying, no, you left with my daughter. I saw your face. I know it was you. And um, so that kind of blows out of the water, but he continued that kind of tricky dialogue and, and, and um, trying to prove himself innocent. And then the other part of it was his public defender, Elton Swartz, married Schaefer's wife uh, about a month after the trial. And at that time, you had to be divorced, I think a minimum of 30 days before you could get remarried in, in Florida. So they had to do this quick divorce thing. And Elton Schwartz came out and made a public address, said, you know, I am going to marry my client's wife. And, um, you know, tried to be as straight-faced about it as possible, but there was always a, a hint that maybe that that maybe he wouldn't have given the best defense to Schaefer, and so Schaefer played that up. Um, and I'm I'm sure um, the relationship started during during the time he was uh, his attorney, but I don't I think he did the best job he could to defend a serial killer who was he was guilty. So they gave him more ammunition and say, well, the state attorney was tied in with, you know, a drug smuggler and my public defender was, you know, having a relationship with my wife. So, you know, uh, he got a lot of press out of that and he, he ran with that for years, you know, and, and put both, both of those men on guard. But they were both still willing to talk to me and I talked to both of them extensively, especially Robert Stone. But he finally... Uh, told me to turn off the recorder one day when I brought up the Rollerson drug smuggler and, and Lynn Brumley, and he was just done with it. And I said, you know, Patrick, just turn your recorder off and we're done. So, and a few weeks later, he, he left office. So that's the strange case. Uh, if it can get any stranger with Schaefer, that uh, even the legal part was, was um, questionable. So, yeah, I mean, it's still really hard to comprehend this guy is caught after having tied up and terrorized two young women. He's released, and in the meantime, three pairs of young women disappear. I mean, did anyone put two and two together? It seems so obvious, but I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Yeah, but, you know, no one did. And, and the thing is, all of those girls were from the same area. You would know, I mean, if, if you were just a, a beat cop, you know, at a small department down there in Broward County, it's a little bit different from Palm Beach and Miami-Dade County, or a lot of the police departments, sheriff's office, uh, and fire departments have consolidated. So there's like one big fire department, one big police department, or sheriff's office in most counties, and there's in Broward County as well, but there's still about 28 different small police departments up there but you know they put out these bolos and stuff you know and uh, i mean two girls missing two girls missing two girls missing and that's just in broward county there were other women missing singly for years from broward county particularly in broward county 
and in other places uh, that they just weren't, you know, they didn't really look farther into it. And I, I don't know if it was because, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, it, it was the late sixties uh, and early seventies. And it was kind of the hippie generation back then. And, and uh, a lot of people were tuning in and dropping out as they say, and, and, um, and hitchhiking across the States, you know, just being a free soul. Um, but at the same time, um, it'd be like letting kids out of, out of a kindergarten and, and letting them run in the streets. It, it was, there were so many kill, killers out there then because there was, you didn't have, you didn't have computers back then. You didn't have the, the systems they have now. You didn't have a federal, um, DNA program. You didn't have a federal, uh, the, the, uh, fingerprint uh, system was still antiquated, even, even late 20th century. So, um, uh, you know, and that's how come some of these people operate for years. You know, the the BTK killer operated for ten years actively and stopped for another ten years, and the yearning was still there so much. You know, and and eventually these people do want to get caught, um, because if they don't get caught, they will not get the recognition of being the this person that they look up to as a you know a glorified ruler of someone's you know i i have the ability to give someone's life or or take it away and it 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 pumps up their ego and their you know they're you know typically psychotic to begin with so you know you can try and think like them all all you want you know i mean i've gotten inside this guy's head as much as anybody could and um and the worst thing you can do is just lose a lot of sleep and 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 tell yourself you can't think like that you know because you'll never understand and you can never be like that. You're that way. You're not. And, and, and most of these people, it starts, it starts younger. I mean, there's, there, there are signs. So, uh, in fact, he left his mother, Schaefer left a mo- his mother a note one day. I, they'd been arguing when he was very young and he didn't sign it, but he left a note, you know, you, you need to quit picking on me or something bad will happen to you. And she took that note to the Broward, county sheriff's office and nobody did anything you know no again it was uh it's just um it was i don't know different times uh, nowadays i i think i think uh, well even as a firefighter i mean things i would have to write my report i had to be very careful about things you know you're always worrying about lawsuits and so forth and and you want to do a good job too but um Nowadays, uh, you you could not dismiss. Well, I'm, I'll say uh, you could. I, I I can't see that being dismissed nowadays. But who knows? Maybe maybe there's still some lackadaisical law enforcement out there somewhere that would not take it seriously. But uh, from what I know, what I've learned over the past thirty years plus working on this book is that. Uh, these people do exist. They exist in a certain percentage per capita. There's going to be X amount of serial killers in a group of a thousand people or ten thousand, what have you, and um, it's 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 not a new phenomenon. It's it's just more recognized now and it has a name, and um, uh, you know we we don't seem to be hearing about it as much anymore. First of all, the isolation, everybody with the virus this past year, and and before that, school shootings everywhere. 
that was that was the thing and now and maybe maybe the virus in some way is is kind of slowed that down you know people want to get recognized as, as being a mass murderer uh, and that's the other type of murder there's a mass murder that kills everybody in one place at one time and then you have the spree killer that i talked about earlier that they kill some people usually that they know initially and then it spreads from there but they're on a path of destruction they know my killing spree is going to go out today just like the mass murderer typically they'll kill themselves but the serial killer is a, is a sneaky beast I, I i truly think and they've been around for centuries uh, i truly believe that in medieval days that's where all the horror uh, stories came from you know werewolves and vampires and and witches and so forth you know and telling telling your kids don't walk through the woods and don't walk in the dark and don't walk in alleys and i i think it there were serial killers back then and people were murdered and maybe they found them, you know, sometimes it, they did. And, you know, sometimes it never caught the per- person doing it. Jack the Ripper, for instance. And, um, and that's one reason I ended up, uh, calling my book American Ripper because, uh, and it, um, it very close to Jack the Ripper and, and in the same fashion, you know, he, um, always, always killing, women uh and in shaver's case he was able to get two at a time but he started with some others and and actually um i know you've read the book eric and in that first chapter where there's that one section um that is basically from his diary on how to kill someone uh it's extremely graphic i absolutely know that and and i absolutely know that that can turn some people off readers but I wanted to do that so people knew what they were dealing with as they read the book. Uh, and I tell everybody, if you can get past that first chapter where it re- you really get inside the head of a killer because he he wrote it to be read. And y- if you read that, you know, you can't make that up. And and my my investigation, my conclusion with that part of that diary was that was his first murder victim. It explains uh, about hanging this woman and torturing her and eventually killing her and, and having sex with her uh, even after she was dead. It, I, it, it talks about her wearing this black chiffon dress. And one of the people that was missing from Broward County was Carmen Halleck, sometimes call, called Candy Halleck. And she was the last seen wearing a black chiffon dress. And it was someone he knew. Um, and that's the other thing. Typically they do know their killers, you know, at least, um, they've been watching them. They may have had a conversation with them. And in some cases they, you know, might've been the next door neighbor. Certainly, you know, he didn't hide himself from Susan Place's parents or Georgia Jessup's parents. And then, uh, the, uh, Briscolina girl, uh, there's some evidence that he worked for her father, at a uh, window replacement company and she uh, she was last seen walking home from school and to me and he they lived just a few blocks apart so i mean you know if someone goes missing in the ocean and there's sharks seen around there you kind of know it probably the sharks got him so um in this case the shark was schaefer wow so were there some general commonalities among the murders committed by him? Um, well, 
they were all female. There was one, there's one male that they suspected he may have murdered. And, um, a guy named Leonard Masser, it was found on the beach area also up in the Hutchinson Island area. So that's clue number one. And, um, Master was found with his hands cut off. And I've talked to some investigators that believe that Schaefer used that set of handcuffs again and, and then couldn't get them off um, and had to cut the hands off of Masser. Um, there's been some hints that maybe he, he wondered what it would be like to kill a man. And of course, his whole thing, all these murders were about sex you know, and sex itself is about power. I mean, if you get into, if you talk to a psychiatrist, sometimes they're going to break it down into, it's all about power, sex and everything. It drives everybody. But, um, that he may have even considered, uh, a homosexual relationship, uh, or, uh, you know, an experience and whether that happened and he didn't like it or it didn't happen, uh, and he just wanted to experiment with killing uh, Masser uh, or the man, uh, Masser. It, either way, Masser ended up dead, so we won't ever really know. But uh, he's he's still on the list. Uh, I, I reluctantly put him on the list um, because because he is male and all the other victims were female. But the Hutchinson Island thing, you know, the, the placement of the body the dismemberment um there was no signs that uh, there were any sexual intercourse with master but um there's just some things that it, it seemed like it could be him so i kept i kept them on the on the maybe list so uh, i tell people the maybe list includes three or four names that i couldn't say for sure put my hand on a bible yes he did that but um there's 11 that i would put my hand on the Bible any time of the day and say, yeah, they, he definitely did that. And that's just the ones that we know from evidence down here. I also suspect that he traveled to Europe and killed some people and, and certainly out of state and particularly in Iowa and, um, and some other places where he used to go deer hunting. What was the earliest murder and how old was he when he committed it? He was in his mid twenties and he, I think Carmen Halleck, Candy Halleck, uh, was the first victim. Um, they had gone out a few times and, um, and then, you know, it didn't work out, but I, I guess they stayed in touch somewhat and she just went missing one night and she was never found. She was never found. I'm trying to recall the other girls' names that, um, were found years and years later. Up in, they found their uh, skulls up in a canal in Palm Beach County, and it was it was, and they weren't kids; they were a little bit older. Um, I'd, I'd have to pull my book up and take a look at my my victims list. Uh, and which, by the way, the victims, the chapter uh, called the victims goes through extensively that that list of twenty eight. It clears the names off the list. It clears a lot of names. And then, but it gets into a lot of other ones that I, I thought they should reopen the case and, um, and look at those because there was, and, and some people may disagree with me on this, and I, I, I don't want to get in arguments with 
people. But I, I, I believe if you're a serial killer, there's no reason to keep you in prison alive. I, I think you, you, uh, delivered the death sentence to a lot of people uh, who had no reason to be killed. And so you deserve the death penalty. And in, in Florida, the one year he murdered Susan place and Georgia Jessup. And, and this comes back to the six person jury, the year that he murdered them. There was a one year uh, period of Florida history where they stopped the death penalty for a capital crime. And because they didn't have to go for the death penalty that allowed them to use the six person jury. But that, that one year history, it wasn't calendar day, January one to calendar day, January one, the next year it was, it ended before he killed the Briscoline, Briscoline and farmer girls. And before he killed Peggy, Ron and Wendy Stevenson, both very young girls, by the way, eight, and nine years old. And, um, they were outside that, that period of history. Uh, they were back into the era that ran for many years and, uh, you, you can still get a death sentence in Florida. Uh, but just that one part that when Susan and Georgia were, were murdered, that was just that one part in history that they had taken the death penalty off the, off the table. Part of my, my goal was, especially after um, he, he tortured me for years with these lawsuits and the nasty letters, the letters he sent to the house, you know, threatening my family were uh, not good. You know, so I, I tried to get the, the cases open for the Briscolina and Farmer girls so that justice could be served. He would get the penalty he deserved. The tri- trial would be better put together. They may look at other cases, you know, and if they wanted to put them all in, in, in one, then that would be fine. But there's other people that just didn't get justice and never will. And I'll be honest with you, Eric, um, I still hear from the families of these people. Um, I, I, I had to put off publishing the book for months, even years when I started looking back into these cases and I started getting calls from people asking, Hey, do you know what happened to my daughter? I'm, or I grew up with that girl down the street. She was my best friend. And, uh, with the, with, uh, the media we have now, you know, the social media, I mean, once I got on Facebook, I started hearing from these people systematically, you know, and, and just before we published, this book, I, there was an, another group of girls, the Jensen twins that went missing in 73, early in 73, uh, before he went to jail and dismembered, sexually assaulted, and they had some DNA. So, uh, I had his DNA on some of the letters he wrote me. Um, you know, he looked the envelope. So, uh, I sent that to him and, and, uh, eventually he was cleared of that one. But while they were looking at him for that, a suspect on that, they ended up finding, the real killer of those women. So in that fashion, I feel like I helped solve mur- uh, two murders, but um, they, you know, the, the answer I got was why, why, when I asked, why didn't they go for the death penalty after it came back on the table? Why didn't they go ahead and prosecute him for the other girls' bodies? Cause they had found the Briscoline and farmer bodies by then. 
uh, also dismembered and, and buried on a beach down in Broward County. And they found him when they went to build a building there. And, and the, the general melees, if you will, was, uh, uh, well, he's convicted. He's got two, two life sentences. And, um, you know, we're done with it. And I, I can tell you as a parent, uh, I would not have been satisfied with that. Um, especially as, you know, I didn't have kids when I started doing this, but I do now. And, and I would not, uh, I would not be happy. I would not be pleased. I would not be satisfied with, uh, well, the killer's already in jail. Don't worry about it. You know, I, that, that wouldn't work for me. And I'm sure it wouldn't work for 99% of the parents out there, no matter what your beliefs are. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility being the point person for something like this. I would imagine for a lot of families who have lost someone to this monster, you are almost a connection for them to their lost loved ones. And you've got to feel a heavy sense of responsibility, not only to make sure that you get all of the details right, but to make sure the memory of the victims are properly protected. That's that, that's been a goal, uh, Eric. It's been a goal since I started the book, um, and and unfortunately, I mean, I'm still hearing from people. And the book came out in uh, summer you know, at the height of our virus um, last summer, and um, and my publisher wanted to publish it. Uh, we were supposed to publish it last March, and then we put it off because I had heard from another family member. And then, and then we were going to do it. Um, then we did it in June and I almost pulled the plug on that because that's when I found out about the, um, the generous sisters. Um, but you know, my publisher said, Hey, you know, you can't keep putting off the publication date. Uh, you've been working on this thing for 30, 35 years, you know? So, um, but, um, I have a, message on my Facebook right now from the sister of one of the victims that came in February that I, I haven't even responded to because um, I'm not sure what I'm going to tell her. Oh, boy. So tell us about Schaefer's demise in prison. Oh, well, that might be a nice way to wrap things up. Um, well, <laughs> um, he he did get the justice that he deserved. You know, the rest of the families didn't get their justice, but, but he did. Um, he, um, he, uh, was in, um, he, he was taken away from the population of the prison. He was, um, a serial killer and a cop. And those people don't, uh, serial killer cop and a, um, and a child killer slash molester, those people don't do well in the prison system. Um, usually someone will try and kill them one way or the other. So they're usually put in solitary confinement, and he was. And there was another killer in there. He wasn't a serial killer, but he was, um, he was a prisoner that was released from the uh, Cuban prisons when they did the Merolito boat lift, they, they called it down here. And... Um, they cleaned out the Cuban prisons and they came over here on rafts and whatever and ended up in South Florida. And, and um, the, the man that killed Schaefer 
the first thing he did was he got on the beach and he killed a German tourist, stabbed him to death. Not a serial killer, but obviously someone that can't be around people. So he was put in prison. He was in solitary confinement too. And all the other prisoners were out in the recreational yard. And someone, we don't know who, left the doors open. And that killer from Cuba went down the hall with the knife and stabbed Mr. Schaefer 47 times. And then he removed his eyes and threw them out in the recreational yard. And, um, and I always say I can't think of a better way for a serial killer to go than, than you know, live by the sword and die by the sword. And um, some people probably think that's uh, a pretty dark thought. But um, if you dealt with Schaefer long enough like I did, it, you'd realize it's, um, it's perfect for him. And a lot easier to think about publishing your book, right? Once the threat of lawsuits are over. Uh, well, you know, uh, the threat of lawsuits never over, Eric. Um, uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, so far, so good. Um, like I said, anyone can sue anybody. I just know I won't be sued by Schaefer again. And I'm absolutely positive that he was still alive. I, I would have been sued a hundred times over this year, you know, so... Um, but you know, uh, some people may not like what I've written about them. They certainly had the right to sue me if they like, um, they can't deny it. I mean, I, I investigate this thing as, as diligently as anybody could and anything I've written in it is fact. There's no conjecture whatsoever. Um, it's proven fact. And, and in fact, I, I could have on a, on conjecture said that he killed a lot more people, you know, but I really try to stick with what I could find out myself and, and put, put him, I could put him at the scene of the crime of the other people. Um, he's, he had a piece of jewelry that, um, the Briscolina fam family has said time and again, they know that was their daughters. Uh, and that came up in court and, instead of following through on that and doing another trial for separate murder, um, they, they didn't. Um, but I, I, I was contacted. There was a friend that grew up with, uh, Mary Briscolina who contacted me from Colorado. And that was a few years ago on Facebook. And then she's best friends with Briscolina's sister. And, and she has contacted me. Uh, she asked me, can I give your name? I, you know, you know so much about this case. And of course they've read the book. Um, and I told them, you know, be careful reading it. You know, it's, it's graphic. Um, but, um, um, and then just, um, recently, um, there was another girl named Deborah Lowe and her sister's the one contacted me in February. And, you know, they're all looking for hope. And um, in her case, I, I can't, I don't have anything. Yeah, they just want some semblance of closure, right? Yes, yes, that's correct. Well, gosh, thank you for spending some time talking about this with me. So tell us about your website. Obviously, you are very actively communicating with people still about these murders. 
How can someone who has information or a connection to the case contact you? Oh, gosh. I'm like, you know, if, if anybody had any kind of information, uh, I would enjoy. Um, I would I would I still am looking for the truth in, in many of these. And I would I would accept and enjoy any correspondence I got from any listeners that thought they knew some information or want some information about um, someone maybe they knew was missing. Um, I'm still pretty good at finding things. So, um, my website is www.talesofpatrickkendrick.com. Um, you can, you can Google my name, Patrick Kendrick, author of Patrick Kendrick, and, and that'll take you to Amazon or if you want to go directly to the site and on Amazon, um, there's, there's links to my site and, um, and where to buy my other books, which aren't quite as, um, as uh, graphic and, or, well, they're, they're at least fictional. I'll put it that way. And, um, there is one book I wrote extended family that was a bestseller. Um, and it was, it was inspired by Schaefer in some ways. Um, it's, um, it's a serial killer. It's lots of serial killers in the book, basically. Um, but, um, I have some other books, uh, that are, you know, they're crime fiction. Uh, Papa's Problem was my first book and that won, uh, my first Florida book award. And, um, I did Extended Family and Acoustic Shadows. It was done by Harper Collins in, in the UK. And it was a bigger seller in, in the UK than here. Um, uh, and the savants was my first young adult book and probably the most po positive book I've written. Um, it really speaks to young people who, who feel like, um, maybe they don't fit in and, um, and it's, uh, it's, uh, kind of a fun ride. There's a cataclysmic event that threatens the United States and no one can figure out how to s stop it. And, and these several people who have, savant type gifts um come together and and help save the world so it's a very positive book and that won my second florida book award um i've been nominated for some other awards and so forth but um not here to beat on my chest just maybe sell a few books but um again it's www.talesofpatrickkendrick all all one word no hyphen dot com and um Yes, please feel free to uh, contact me and check out the site. And, um, and uh, I hope to hear from people. Well, outstanding. Well, thank you again for sharing some of the details of your book with us. Well, thank you for having me, Eric. And, um, and um, wish you luck and stay safe. Be healthy. Yeah, you too. All right. Again, I have been speaking to Patrick Kendrick. He is the author of American Ripper, The Enigma of America's Serial Killer Cop. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.